If you will, open in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalms 26 particularly. Psalm 26. I think it would be well for us because of Psalm 26 and the features that are contained therein that we have at least some portion of our time tonight praying individually and silently to the Lord because there is here in Psalm 26 an amazing truth about David asking the Lord to examine him. If there ever was a psalm in Israel's Psalter which called for courage, Psalm 26 would be it. Why do I say this? I say it to underscore the point that Psalm 26 is a song in which King David asked God to thoroughly examine his life. And that's where the courage comes in. Because it is not easy to be honest and pure before God and to ask Him to look through every crack and crevice of our lives and ask Him to tell us what He finds there. How sincerely, how soberly, how seriously would you and I plead with the Lord to examine all our motives and our actions. How honestly and how probingly would we seek our God's omniscient omniscient knowledge to take a full sweep through our life, looking at everything about our life, our thinking, our actions, our motives, our work, our ministry, everything. This would take real courage and immense spiritual fortitude because if you, like me, are sincere and desirous of doing this, the Lord will accommodate you. (laughs) He will. He assumes that if we are sincere in this request, He will examine everything about us in order to produce righteousness in us And He will leave no spiritual stone unturned. This is Psalm 26. It begins with David pleading with God to do a kind of spiritual inventory. Or we might use the analogy of David asking Yahweh to perform a major comprehensive spiritual surgery on David's heart in order to find out what's truly there. What's there in real substance? Now, what kind of authenticity is present in David's life? What's the real nature of David's personal relationship with God? That is, from God's own perspective, not just David's. It's as though God is being asked by David to take a scalpel and cut right through the skin and even into the bones of David's spiritual life so as to do an autopsy of his soul. And I want you to please notice how he seeks Yahweh's help in finding out more about David's inner drives and determinations. 
because David wants to live an authentically pure life in the presence of his Creator. And now he's asking God to be his examiner. And he does this in an amazing way. He takes three different tracks, three different avenues to ask God to do this. And the first one is this. He, in essence, says, God, examine my walk. Examine my walk in verses 1 to 3. Notice what he says. This is a psalm of David. And he begins by saying, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Or it could be translated truth. I walk in your truth. Now this is an amazing request for divine examination. David asks Yahweh to consider his spiritual walk with the first step in the process being a request for vindication. You see that word there, vindicate me, O Lord? It's not as though David is proudly insisting or perhaps demanding that God somehow wake up and see what a swell guy David is. That's that's not what he's doing at all. He's not assuming that God is asleep. He's unaware of David's life. It's not as though he's assuming that uh, God ought to recognize David more fully than, than he does. No, not at all. What he's simply doing is he's pleading with the Almighty to look around the earth and examine the hearts of men and women to see whether David's own claim of walking worthy before his God is actually true. In, in no one else's eyes but God alone. God, I, I want an audience of one. I just want to be right before you and I want you to vindicate me. The word translated in verse 1 is vindicate. It actually comes from those words righteousness or justification. That's the, the family of which it comes. And this, this translation of vindicate is, is a good one. It's David asking for God to look at his life and his actions and see whether those life and actions are consistent with someone who says he's in a relationship with God. He's asking that question. Am I vindicated in your eyes? And this is precisely why I said at the beginning of the message that this kind of request takes some spiritual guts. I mean, it could be that so many of us, we do certain things, we engage in certain spiritual activities, and we, we come to church, we, we read our Bible, we, we just had an opportunity to give unto the Lord, and, and there are a lot of things that, that we do. We pray, we, we uh, involve ourselves in spiritual activity and service, and uh, all of that in one sense because nobody else knows our hearts, we can say, well, we do all these things and I look like everybody else around me and we're all doing what appear to be the same things. But of course, we all might assume that maybe not everybody is doing it with the same motives. Maybe they're not, is is not the case that someone is actually doing it with the right motives. And David says, 
I don't really care about other people and what they're doing or not doing. I want to go right to the source of my life, the very creator of my soul. And I'm asking him to examine me to see whether or not I have any reason to assume that I'm vindicated before him. This is a a gutsy move here. And I want you to notice how it is that David is making this plea for vindication from the divine judge, no less. He says this, verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Now the thing that leaps off the page to me about this is that David knows that God is omniscient. He knows that God's his creator. He's not looking around to other people. He's not going to his kinsmen. He's not going to his fellow military officers. And he's saying, hey, do you think I'm a good guy? Do you think I'm a man of my word? Do you think I have integrity? Because the men under his command would undoubtedly say what? Well, yes. Yes, King David, of course. Of course you are. You're the most righteous man that we know of. That's why we follow you. And that's why you're the king of Israel. They might even say, and we know because since you are the king of Israel, and since God is the one who puts a king in place and he displaces another, then apparently God thinks so. David says, I'm not concerned about any of that. Here's what I'm concerned about. I'm going to go right in prayer to God himself, And I want to ask him the question, am I vindicated and I'm making a claim because I think I'm walking in my integrity before you? Do you believe that, God? Do you believe that I'm walking in integrity? He believes he's walking in integrity by God's own grace. And he says, but I want you to examine me to see whether or not I'm taking a step-by-step characteristic pattern in my life that includes integrity before you. I know you know whether it's true. You know, he's already said this a couple of different times even before we get to Psalm 26. He says in Psalm 7, the latter part of verse 8 and 9, he says this, Judge me, O Lord, according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. This uh, apparently was not just a one-time request for examination. This is an ongoing thing that David uses probably as some kind of spiritual check, spiritual examination in his relationship with God. Why do I say that? Because he says also in Psalm 25, 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. And he says in Psalm 41, 12, you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. This appears to be an ongoing spiritual examination with which David is asking the Lord to do regularly in his life. This is not a one-time thing. He's asking the Lord. He's, He's making an appeal for vindication because he believes that he is walking in some level of of integrity for which God would bless him, which God would say, yes, you are. Look at the latter part of verse 1. I have trusted in the Lord 
without wavering. My faith is in you. I have confidence in. That's that that word for trust. I, I have confidence in you. I have not wavered from this trust of you from day one. He knows he can't attain to the vindicating position of which he's asking God unless he can also say in confidence, in trust, in faith that his boast is squarely in Yahweh without wavering. But he even goes further. Look at verse 2. Prove me, O Lord. Try me. And even a third line, test my heart and my mind. I mean, you know, it's not like he's saying, hey, Lord, check me out. And then you get busy doing something else. I mean, he's, he's really sitting in his prayer closet and he's asking God for a full and complete examination. Notice what he says. He's intensely asking God to examine his spiritual walk. And that first verb that he uses there, examine me, it means to prove or to test, test or to try. This is, this is what he says in, uh, uh, or the psalmist, whoever he might be, if it is David, in Psalm 139. Look over there. Remember that famous psalm, Psalm 139, that, that has an incredible array of the kinds of searchlight terminology that David is looking for here? I believe this is the psalm of David. It says it in the superscription to the choir master, a psalm of David. And notice what he says right in verse 1. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. <laughs> He's asking here in Psalm 26, and the Lord's answering in Psalm 139. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. This is a very famous psalm. And notice how he ends it in verses 23 and 24, at least nearing the end. At the very end, he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I want, I want you to know me. And what's even greater? I want to know you. I want to know you. And he says here in Psalm 26, not only prove me, O Lord, but he says, and try me. And this needs a little bit, I think, of explanation because if we're not careful, there are other passages in our Bibles that say, don't test the Lord. And if your translation says, test me, then that seems like a contradiction, but it really isn't. The idea of some people who were testing the Lord is they were actually flaunting themselves before God as though God wouldn't do anything to them. That they could do whatever they wanted. And so they were actually testing the Lord even when they knew they were doing things against what God was saying to them. What He was commanding them. 
That's a very evil and wicked kind of test. This isn't like that at all. This is not a contradiction. This is kind of like what's going on in James chapter 1. Turn over in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Because this too is sometimes misunderstood. And this may give you some help to differentiate between the idea of some people, like in 1 Corinthians 10 when it says that the Israelites, they tested the Lord and they were judged. And here, it's talking about, Lord, I want you to test me. And there's a nuance of a difference there. And the difference is this. When I'm asking God to test me, or when I'm, in a sense, saying to the Lord, let's put this to a test, I'm doing it in a humble, godly way, and I'm asking the Lord to winnow out the sin of my heart so that I can be pure before Him. That's the kind of testing that God wants. That's the kind of examination that God is asking for us to come before Him regarding. Another kind of test is when we test the Lord, when we assume we can do anything we want or we can flout our our fist in His face and that He's not going to do anything, and that's not good. In James chapter 1, look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That actually could be translated under a test. For when he, this blessed man, has stood the test, the test of God's own examination, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. But then notice the warning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is, and the translation there is tempted, and that's good because it's a negative context. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Now that's a good translation. And the reason why is because the Greek word that's used here in James chapter 1 for this idea of testing is the word parasmas. And it's actually the same word that's used even in these negative contexts for temptation. You say, what's the difference if it's the same word? The difference is this. When God has a parasmos in mind for me, it's a testing, not as a solicitation to do evil, but as a test to pass. So that God can mature and strengthen and establish me and conform me more to the image of His Son. That's a good kind of test. That's a righteous test. God does test men. And David's asking for that kind of testing right here in Psalm 26. Lord, test me. Test my mind. And God says, in effect, so be it. I will bring you before the test. Whatever the test is. Job went through that test, right? God was saying, Job is a candidate, even talking to Satan, to be tested. And when Satan gets a hold of him... It ceases to be a test, but a solicitation to do evil because Satan doesn't want him to follow God. He wants him to fail, and so it becomes not a test, but a temptation. Now that's, that's an amazing reality coming out of a context 
that says, the blessed man, when he's steadfast under God's testing, and when he has stood, uh, uh, when he has withstood such testing, he'll receive the crown of life. And I think the warning here in James chapter 1 is that if someone is undergoing a test from God, whatever trial that you're going through in your life, whatever it may be, and of course it's usually multiple trials, but if you're thinking about one thing, if God is involved, He's not soliciting you to do evil in your response. He's testing you to see your resolve to trust Him. If Satan's involved... He doesn't want you to pass the test. He wants you to fail. And so His is a kind of testing, or in this case, the right translation, a temptation to solicit you to do evil so that you will will fail, and when you fail, you will blame God for it. And that's why there's this warning. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. That's that solicitation to do evil. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the person who's fallen in to the bait-and-switch that they thought it was potentially a test by God to pass, and they realize only too late that it's a temptation from Satan to do evil. And do you want to see what God's doing when He tests somebody? Do you want to see His outcome? Look back at James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's our word. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, that's what God's all about. That's what He's doing. He's not soliciting you and me to do evil. He's actually testing us to produce steadfastness. And James says in verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what James is saying to the new covenant saint. And this is what David is saying in an Old Covenant sense in Psalm 26, Lord, prove me. Try me. Test me. even says that in the latter part of verse 2. Test my heart and my mind. And guess what? That word, test, that Hebrew word, test my heart and my mind, is the equivalent of the word in James 1 that says, and the testing of your faith produces endurance. You remember I've told you that the New Covenant word dakimos and the Old Covenant Hebrew word here for test is talking about a, a metallurgy. It's talking about placing someone, spiritually speaking, into the fires of the testing process as an artisan would take someone Uh, and and put him as though he were uh, metals for which the dross needs to be burned away so that when he takes out such a one, he comes forth as gold. That's exactly what David is saying here. And to what does he base 
this proving, this trying, this testing. Verse 3, for your steadfast love is before my eyes. This is like the uh, Old Testament equivalent of the word grace. For your grace is before my eyes and I walk in your truth. David's saying, I have full confidence, full trust, full faith that you will dispense your grace to me. Why? Because I'm endeavoring, and Lord, you know, with your omniscient examination, you know I've walked in my integrity, verse 1, and verse 3, I walk in your truth, your faithfulness. I have that level of confidence. So try me. Test me. Prove me. Prove that that's the case. And in the final analysis, I believe I'll be vindicated. This isn't proud. This isn't arrogant. This is just David saying, examine my walk. Is this not a great spiritual exercise? This ought to be like a a regular, perpetual request of the believer to his God to ask God, am I true? Am I authentic? Am Am I real? Or am I fake? What do other people think of me? How do I come across to to those around me? I say that in a relationship like a local church of this kind, I want to be authentic. I want to be real. I don't want to be fake. I don't want to be phony. I want people to know the the real me. Well, that's, that's going to require some testing. And maybe someone says, I'm not sure I'm ready for that kind of testing. And so what I'll do is I'll put on the best face I can and I'll, I'll do what everybody else is doing, but I'm not sure I'm ready for the examination process where God's going to put me through the fire of testing to burn off the, the fakery, the hypocrisy. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. And yet David says, no, no, I'm ready. I want this. I want God to examine my walk. And then he says, secondly, examine my worship. Look at verse 4. Not only my own personal walk, but here's what he says in this vindication examination process. Verse 4, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds, O Lord. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. This is is tantamount for David to say, I just... I just want to ask you about the examination of my own step-by-step walk of the spiritual life, and I'm also asking you at the same time for you to examine where I go in this walk, who I associate with, what my life is with the people around me, how I conduct myself with the others in my sphere. And notice how he starts it out negatively. Verse 4, I do not sit with men of falsehood. 
And I do not consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Does that not sound just like Psalm 1? Doesn't it? Anybody thought of that? Remember the poetic words of of Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the psalmist in Psalm 1, if it is David, says, verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is almost a a kind of carbon copy of Psalm 1. I don't want to sit with men of falsehood. I don't want to consort with hypocrites. I hate, he says, the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence. Now, one of the things that if the Lord gives us opportunity in the great beyond would be to meet King David. That would be a marvelous experience, I would think. To be able to see the man behind the Psalms. To be able to to converse with him. and To ask him questions and to see his heart. Because he says, "I I don't sit with men of falsehood. I don't consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I'm not going to sit with the wicked. I mean, he refuses to sit, which means no desire for sustained fellowship with liars, hypocrites, evildoers, or any wicked men and women. Rather, he says, verse 6, here's my deepest desire. I wash my hands in innocence. And go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Now, I don't know if he's talking about the sense of washing his hands in innocence, maybe having the connotation of coming before the Lord with a a clean heart, a pure heart. Or it might rather indicate that David has prepared himself to enter the sanctuary of the Lord with those ceremonial washings in order to bring his praise to Yahweh. Whichever, the point is still made that what he wants to do is instead of being with hypocrites and liars and wicked people and evil men, he says, here's what I want to do. I want to be clean and I want to proclaim thanksgiving aloud. And I want to tell whoever's in attendance with me all your wondrous deeds. That's just... That's just marvelous. And he says in verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. You see the, you remember the tent of the Old Testament, which became the tabernacle, right? Sort of that that movable uh, structure that the Jews always sort of took around with them. And then that became the temple. Remember that? The tent, the tabernacle, the temple. That was the locus, the center 
of where God allowed Himself, even though God is in the highest heaven, and even though He's omnipresent, He's everywhere, you can't contain God. He he doesn't live only in one house. You you don't have to go to one place in order to find uh, your worship of the one God. he's, He's everywhere. But what He did, in a kind of local sense, was that He allowed Himself to be manifested where His glory is in a place. And that place was the tent. That place was the tabernacle. That place was ultimately the temple, uh, the great Solomonic temple. I mean, even in Jesus' day, where it was Herod's temple, the the rebuilt temple, and uh, Jesus goes right in and He sees all the merchandisers, right? The the sellers, uh, the the hypocrites, the ones uh, who were really not worshiping God. and And He makes a whip and He cleans them all out because He wants to make sure that they understand my Father's house is a house of what? Prayer, prayer, worship, praise. And he says, I want to have clean hands because I love the habitation of your house where you dwell and where your glory dwells. Your manifested presence. Do you remember there was even a a word that was used? The Shekinah. The Shekinah glory. This, this kind of effulgent glory that, that when it was seen and you couldn't even see the totality of it because you'd be incinerated, it was the place where God's glory was manifested. David says it this way in Psalm 63, 1 and 2. O oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. I mean, yeah, David, he did sinful things because he was a sinful man and he made at times sinful choices. But on balance, on balance, David was a guy who said, give me the option, give me the choice of laying around, sitting with, consorting with hypocrites and liars and the evil men and the wicked of this world, or give me the habitation of your house where the Shekinah glory dwells, and it is no choice for me at all. It's like Moses who chose to experience the ravages of the suffering of God's people rather than the momentary pleasures of the sins of Egypt. And and to think that God did far more than this. Far more than just this uh, local manifested presence of the Lord. In a tent, no less. In a shabby tabernacle that was sort of... uh, hoisted and moved from here to there. And even in a, a temple as beautiful as Solomon's temple was, but was then desecrated and then decimated. And then Herod's temple rebuilt. And then in 70 AD, it came crashing down. No, the very glorious presence of God is now found in the person of Jesus Christ. Because of what John 1.14 says, 
And this Word, this glory of God, dwelt among men. And it was Jesus Christ. You know, David didn't quite know that it was going to be Jesus, but he knew that, knew that there was a Messiah. And he even spoke, I think, better than he knew, because in the book of Acts, it says he was looking for that day and looking for that person. He didn't know his name, but he knew that there was something far more than his own experience. And yet, even in his experience, he was saying, I love the habitation of your house. I love to come here. And I love to worship among your people and tell them all of your wondrous deeds. Now, I know we're here at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And there are a few of us. But I thank God that you, like me, regardless of our tiredness, regardless of the challenge of any day or any week or any month, something inside you, something inside me says, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but out of a desire, a compulsion to want to come to be with God's people and to pray and praise. And guess what? This doesn't even compare with the glory that shall be revealed to us what God has prepared for those who love Him. This is a, this is a small taste of it. Examine my worship. You know, that's what God is doing for all of us Sunday morning, Sunday evening, week after week, month after month, year after year. He's examining our worship. And He's asking the question, what would you rather do? Would you rather rather be here with God's people praying, praising? Or would you rather be doing some other things for which then when the examination day comes, you'll not be vindicated? God will prove and try and test your heart and He'll find something that's true about you that might not be true about the next person, regardless of what they say. Regardless of the routines they go through in your heart, and if you're here because of that right heart, God will bless you abundantly in your life because you're saying, like David, I love the habitation of your house because it's the place where glory dwells. Oh, I know we look like a tent. I know it's like a portable tabernacle. But God delights in the worship of His people. And when we come to Him and say, examine, Lord, whether or not that's true. And if it is true about you and me like it is with David here, God will delight in us. Lastly, examine my way. Examine my way. Verses 9 to 12. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. And notice the turn, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, 
Deliver me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. David may be thinking not just of the present, but also of the future. When the time comes for me to be gathered to my people, when my own demise occurs, I want to be right with you, still walking in my integrity, still rejoicing in your deliverance and seeing your graciousness because my foot stands on level ground. Oh, I wish we had time to read the Psalms that talk about standing on level ground. It's a great phrase, standing on level ground. You look at times in your own meditation at Psalm 2711. Psalm 2711. Or Psalm 143.10. Or Isaiah 26.7. They all essentially say something very similar. Level ground. I might even say level ground at the foot of the cross where you and I are looking for a God to deliver us, to be gracious to us. And with the great assembly of all of those who think and believe the same things, we stand away from those sinners who will be swept away, Psalm 26, 9 says. Bloodthirsty men, evil devices in their hands, full of bribes, but not me. I shall walk in my integrity. So how about our, our examined walk, our examined worship, and our examined way? This is something to praise God for. Let's bow to pray before this God. Father, You are truly the righteous one. The one in whom our soul delights because you are the examiner of our hearts. Even when men accuse us, people slander us, we are said to be not who we claim to be. We don't ask for their examination, but we do ask for yours. You are the one who proves us, tries us, tests us. And when we have stood the test, the test of fiery examination, whether it's our walk, our worship, or our way, we will come forth as gold. All of the sinful dross of this world will be burned up and what will remain is a life of integrity, a life of following your truth, a life of authenticity, and a life of praise and worship with innocent hands and the sweet affirmation 
that we're right where we need to be in the place where glory dwells. Bring that to us for Jesus' sake.